Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, Z-Pack? It's Dr. Z. Welcome to COVID Cluster F Rounds Live. It's Friday, May 15th. It's the Ides of May. And I figure, let's just dive into this. So what I wanted to do tonight, and I've been thinking about this quite a bit this week because we spoke with Dr. Marty McCary. Um, there's another Dr. Todd Stromwasser, whose show is coming out probably tomorrow that we talked to, who runs a series of hospitals in California. And we talked with Judd Brewer, who's a psychiatrist managing sort of the kind of burnout and stress that's going on during COVID and after and before, and kind of integrating all this stuff, thinking about how the heck we got where we are in this COVID disaster, uh, and why it is that the greatest country on earth us, America, right? We have American exceptionalism. We're fantastic. We invented all kinds of stuff. We have medical innovation. We have all kinds of awesomeness. How did we end up with the number one death toll in the world from COVID-19 when we saw it coming from miles away? And talking to Marty McCary about this uh, really kind of brought some of this home. So let's go back to the beginning and kind of talk about what exactly was was going on early on. So November, December, sometime like that, this thing emerges in China. Now, whether it was, now we don't think it was bioengineered, but there is the also the theory that was it a accidental release from something that was being studied in a lab? Who knows? Was it from a, a, a zoonotic, from an animal in those wet markets in Wuhan? Whatever it is, big screw up number one is, um, First of all, just that China exists at all in a state where this is allowed to happen. So when SARS happened in 2003, it was a disaster in Asia, and they learned a lot. Um, the Pretty much every Asian country learned, oh my gosh, when this happens again, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. We're going to do aggressive testing, contact tracing, isolation, quarantine, screening, all those things to make sure that we don't get SARS to the sequel. Well, the Chinese also had this idea, but unfortunately it appears that there were early sort of signs that party members didn't want to rock the boat. It wasn't really uh, uh, clearly and transparently discussed early on. But one of the things that was happening is doctors on the front lines were putting out signals. Uh, You remember Dr. Lee, rest in peace, was basically raising the alarm. Hey, this is SARS-2, the sequel. Um, we need to do something. And you know how much of that was hushed up by the Chinese government? And like Marty McCary said on the show, you cannot trust the, the Chinese Communist Party as far as you can spit, but you can 
believe people on the ground. And there were plenty of people on the ground saying, you know, what was happening. So in that sense, now you have a perfect storm already from the beginning where you have Wuhan, which is, you know, 10 million people. It's a travel hub. You're pushing up on the eve of one of the great migrations in humanity annually, which is Chinese New Year, people leaving everywhere. So before really anything could have been locked down properly, this thing was already spreading all around the globe. The New York Times actually had a great online piece where it was an animation showing exactly the motion of what has been deduced patients were doing. And they were going out of Wuhan to all over Asia, Bangkok, New York, California, basically all around. And so this thing was already getting out. Now, at this point, the Koreans, Hong Kongers, uh, the Taiwanese are getting wise to this. WHO is saying a bunch of stuff. Um, they quickly sequenced the genome, released it publicly, um, so people could start developing tests. WHO had a pretty robust test. And so the Asian countries like Singapore, um, South Korea, Taiwan, were testing aggressively. We're doing something called contact tracing, which is if someone tests positive or has symptoms or is presenting with a case of this, they would figure out through a pretty aggressive mechanism using technology, which even at the time I remember saying, hey, what these guys are doing, the US would never, you would have privacy advocates screaming bloody murder if we try to do this in the US. And yet they did it and they did it successfully. So they were able to say, okay, this person exposed this many people and, and quickly find those people have them isolate at home for 14 days, and very quickly actually were able to control the outbreak, even though they had proximity to China, even though all those other things. Now then, what was happening here early on is, you know, CDC, WHO, our government officials were saying, okay, we got our eye on this thing, we think that you know it's gonna be controlled maybe in a similar way to SARS because the reason SARS was controlled so well is that you weren't contagious until you had pretty rip-roaring symptoms. In fact, a little after you had pretty rip-roaring symptoms. So screening for SARS was pretty easy. You could actually look at temperature. So if they had a fever, it's already a concern and any other symptoms. And at that point, you could quarantine and test those people, which was done so well that there were only you know 8,000 cases or something uh, worldwide because they were able to very quickly quarantine, isolate, screen, and that was an international effort. So airports were screening, et cetera. And same thing with, with MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. So because of the nature of SARS, the SARS-1, uh, the original, you know, still a classic in my mind, the, uh, the disease actually was stamped out for all intents and purposes by, a by taking that reproductive number, the R naught, R with a little zero, and squeezing it down so low that the disease actually petered out of existence. Um, and so people who were working on vaccines at the time, Peter Hotez, who's been on our show, found their vaccines being shelved because nobody was urgent about SARS anymore. <clears throat> Now, what happened with, with SARS-2, the sequel, coronavirus, this current coronavirus? Remember, SARS-2 was a coronavirus as, as well, okay? So this is SARS-CoV-2. Um, in this case, 
initially it wasn't clear. And in fact, the Chinese government was denying person to person transmission. They were denying community transmission. They were saying, no, the only cases are potentially from animal to human. But what was happening on the ground was very different. And so for whatever reason, the Asian countries acted very quickly, but Americans were still kind of watching and waiting and seeing and saying, well, we're not gonna have community transmission here, or we're far away, they're screening, you know, et cetera. Little did they know that the way the sequel presented, the current COVID-19 disease, is that people could be asymptomatic, have no symptoms, and still be replicating virus and still be shedding and transmitting virus. And as a result, all your screening protocols that don't involve direct testing are going to fail because people who already have symptoms, you know, it's already out of the bag. They could have been transmitting disease for days prior to developing symptoms. And early data from the Diamond Princess and other situations showed that it's asymptomatic people, a large proportion, maybe never develop symptoms. Some have symptoms that are very delayed until later and they've been transmitting the whole time. And actually looking in retrospect at a good example of this, a single asymptomatic patient in Washington state as part of a choir, a group of people in a large sort of church where they were doing social distancing, but they weren't wearing masks and they weren't doing aggressive hand hygiene and they were still like stacking chairs together and exchanging snacks and things like that. This one person infected 53 people that night over a two hour period where they were doing their choir rehearsal. And that asymptomatic um, person ultimately led to two people dying in that cohort of 53 infections. Now, it's interesting too, because if you look at the average median age in that group, it was 69. So that was a much older group, and two lives were lost out of 53, right? Which is a, what, a roughly 4% mortality in an elderly population, it's kind of interesting. But the idea then that this super spreader could actually infect so many people without ever knowing it, and part of the reason they were super spreading is another thing that wasn't understood about this virus early on or wasn't really communicated well, which is that whether you're symptomatic or asymptomatic, you can project this thing into the air by aggressive breathing. So in the, in the course of singing, that is a projection from the lower respiratory tract into the air. We don't know the distance, but the truth is when you're thinking about infection, you need a particular dose of virus to get you infected. So it has to reach a certain threshold. And you have, in order to hit that threshold, it needs to get in your eyes or your nose or your mouth or on your hands and then in your eyes, nose or mouth. And that takes some time. So the majority of cases were not transient experiences where you were briefly exposed to someone. They were close contacts, family members, people living in the same house indoors, which is another thing we learned about this virus, which is it does not like the outdoors as much. Sunlight, UV, high temperatures don't do well for this virus, but indoors is a perfect environment. So here you have this church, uh, and a super spreader who has now got a captive audience around them, they're putting the virus into the air, and then people, it's either getting on stuff and people are touching stuff and touching their eyes, or they're just exposed there for a long time breathing that same confined airspace. 
And that's how this thing spreads, right? So in the setting of that, then, it's a great illustration of how this thing got way out of hand. Now, this was happening at a time when, I think it was like the day of or a day prior to when Washington decided to, to say, do a shelter in place or a lockdown. So what happened to these 53 people? And this is, again, this is now we're translating into the American experience. They actually went home. Some of them started developing symptoms. They talked amongst themselves. They started to self-isolate. One of their representatives then reached out to the public health department and said, hey, we think something's going on. They then got tested, et cetera. But by, by this automatic process of doing the right thing, having symptoms and self-isolating, talking to public health, they were able to avert possibly hundreds of thousands of more infections. So let's think about that. There was no real direct government intervention. They just decided to do the right thing because they were good, conscientious citizens. And that makes you wonder too about Again, if you look at the Swedish experience versus the American experience, the Swedish experience where people are just asked mostly to do the right thing and large gatherings are banned versus other experiences where you've really had to tell from above, hey, don't do anything. So this being said, at this point, there has been travel to Italy, Italy, which is a, one of the oldest populations on the planet, smokers, Etc. High migrant Chinese worker population did not shut the country down to travel early. Ends up with a massive in infection rate. They're not known for their DNR DNI code status, so everyone's on ventilators. The healthcare system gets overwhelmed. People are dying left and right. But at the same time, people are traveling back and forth to New York, which is a major travel hub, and the rest of Europe is getting infected. At this point, the, you know, the Europeans are already getting wise to this and are doing aggressive lockdowns, spinning up testing, uh, using um, either their own tests or WHO's tests. So what happened in the US? At this point, early on, CDC says, well, mm, this is a thing. And they are asked to decide what, and there was a great um, Rolling Stone Rolling Stone, of all things, Rolling Stone article about this whole process of cluster effery, right? I'm trying not to curse so you guys will share this. And I'm so tired of people yelling at me for cursing. If you have to go out of your way to send me an email chiding me for cursing, you can F off. And again, I would say the full word, but I want you guys actually to share this today. Normally, I don't give an F. All right. That all being said, the CDC had to make a decision. Do we make our own test or do we rely on WHOs or another outside test. Now, this is where our great American exceptionalism comes in. CDC is acknowledged as one of the great public health bodies in the world. They said, why would we need another outside test when we can just make our own? And they started doing that. Unfortunately, a perfect storm occurred uh, where there was a mistake in part of the test reagents, it had problems and they had to recall it leading to huge delays. And then on top of this, right, we have this wonderful perfect storm where it's clear that healthcare systems are being overwhelmed elsewhere. So how do we spin up enough personal protective equipment, masks, et cetera, for frontline healthcare providers, including the swabs to do the testing, when a lot of that ish is made in China and China's on lockdown or sending it locally or to local partners, well, this was one of the huge disasters that happened early on. 
So combine the lack of testing, which was a CDC screw up. And by the way, again, we're not assigning blame. We're saying what happened. Discoordination at all levels of government on both parties. But if you look at CDC, you've got it run by a guy named Redfield, who actually doesn't have public health experience, was known in the 80s for being an abstinence guy for HIV. We know how well that works. It actually works quite well. But in reality, on the ground, it doesn't work, right? So this guy's running CDC. He's known to be an obsequious butt kisser, just trying to smooth things over. So you have this perfect storm of crappy leadership, bad coordination, right? And a government actually that has not really been on the side of science as much as we would like, combined with pre-existing structural problems where we're getting all our PPE from China. And at this point, we have the perfect storm of crappy testing and no PPE. Well, guess what? Those two feed on each other because if you have good testing, you can determine which patients don't have the disease and you don't have to burn through your personal protective equipment using it on patients that don't have the disease. Instead of needing to wear PPE for every patient who walks in because you have no idea who's an asymptomatic carrier of this disease. The tests aren't perfect, but they're way better than nothing, which is what we have. Do you guys remember what a disaster it was. People were coming with symptoms and couldn't be tested. I had colleagues here in the Bay Area telling me, I have a patient I know has COVID-19 and CDC saying he doesn't meet criteria to be tested because you had to send the sample to the CDC in Atlanta because they didn't have the tests out in the community because of that screw up. So this was one of the major derailings that led the United States to becoming this exceptional force for you know, healthcare, which actually it isn't, by the way, FYI, I've talked about that, to being today, as of today, we have 90,000 deaths from COVID-19. And you could say that a lot of those were preventable if we had done the right thing early on. Now, at this point, there's crappy testing. We're seeing community spread, which is actually underestimating what's been happening because of asymptomatic carriers. Um, looking at antibody studies, which aren't great. We've talked about this in other shows. The prevalence of this disease is like two to three to five to 15%, depending on where you are. Every location is handling it differently. So San Francisco handled it actually pretty well, clamped down quickly and aggressively and actually slowed, bent the curve pretty rapidly. But sacrifice quite a bit of what people would consider individual liberties because I have to wear a mask on an outdoor trail system, right? New York was a little slower and it's a much more difficult thing to handle because it's so dense, so much travel, and the cat had already been out of the bag at that point. So massive rates of infection, healthcare system coming very close to overwhelm, if not frankly overwhelmed, and healthcare professionals on the front lines dying because they don't have enough PPE because of that other screw up that we're talking about. So at this point, it's a complete cluster F, right? And now the Chinese who figured out pretty quick how to handle this, shut everything down, universal masking. And we're not talking about cloth masks. So let's talk about masking and where, where this went crazy. So early on, CDC Surgeon General Jerome is saying, don't do masks. I was saying, if you wear a mask in public, you're a dick. And the reason I said that is that the masks that people were wearing were surgical masks that they were basically taking from the short supply of 
frontline healthcare workers who need it. Remembering that the big screw up is we didn't have enough PPE, right? For the f- people who are at most risk, which are close quarters, prolonged exposure, which means people who are already sick and their family members and frontline healthcare workers who get this thing at very high rates, which was shown to us by China already. But they figured it out really quick and dropped their nosocomial, their uh, healthcare worker rates very, very low. Including the South Koreans did the same thing, which we did a show with Gloria Huang about how they did this. So at this point, <laughs> we, we are way behind uh, the places that are doing this well. Um, they are already in cultures where universal masking is just, that's no problem, right? You just do it. They're using you know, mostly surgical grade masks. They're not using cloth diapers on their face. At this point, CDC changes its tune and says, well, all right, let's try to weigh what's going on. Uh, instead of, okay, if we say everyone should wear a mask, then they're gonna go out and buy surgical masks. So we're gonna say it's okay to wear cloth masks, save the surgical masks for doctors, which of course doesn't work because people are gonna go buy surgical masks wherever they can. But then let's use cloth masks. Now, the problem with cloth masks is, okay, maybe they reduce the aerosolization of large droplets better than nothing, right? And that's the problem. It's not so much about protecting you, it's about protecting other people from the droplets. If you have asymptomatic carriers, but they're wearing something on their face, the chances of them spraying the area with infectious material, people touching it, touching their eyes, or breathing it indirectly, much, much lower. They said, yeah, go ahead and wear these cloth masks. And of course, people don't really know how to use them. They're still touching their face. They're putting their cell phone to their face. They're wearing gloves and touching stuff and touching. I mean, so again, an education issue, which I ranted about saying, I think cloth masks are dumb because people are going to misuse them. Now, where has my thinking evolved and where has where should we be going with this? Because right now, I think masking is becoming more accepted. You can already start to watch the stigma decrease about masking in the US in areas where there's dense urban environments. So in the Bay Area, I'm now seeing pretty much everybody's wearing a mask. It took a while, it took a few weeks, right? Just like in Asia. And if you look at the countries that handled it well, there's correlation, not causation, there's correlation with universal masking and lower transmission rates for the reason of common sense and scientific extrapolation, but not direct data. And that's another problem with cloth masks. We don't have good data in the wild that these things actually are reducing transmission because we don't know what the transmission rate is out in the wild. We know that probably the majority of transmission is occurring indoors with people in close contact for long periods of time. So yes, grocery stores, it makes sense. Subway, it makes sense. Does it make sense on an outdoor trail system? That's nonsense, right? Just working from first principles. Again, who's gonna study it right now? We need the actual data to show us. We know that, okay, hand washing reduces transmission for many other diseases. And most of our data we're extrapolating to in, from influenza studies, which may behave slightly differently. All right. So now you have different levels of lockdown across the country because this country isn't one country. It's a series of federated states, basically, that each have their own thing going on. So Gavin Newsom in California is one extreme, and then you have whoever else saying, just smoke them if you got them, right? So it's gonna be very different. But of course, that may well be appropriate in America because the rates of infection and our risks are different. Now let's get back to why American exceptionalism actually harmed us here. We are an exceptional country. We're exceptionally fat. 
We have exceptionally poor diet. We have exceptionally um, high rates of chronic disease. We have an exceptionally high gap between um, racial groups in terms of social determinants of health. So if you're African-American, if you're Hispanic, you're more likely to be poor, live in a congested area, in a smaller space, and have to take public transit. Those are all risks for getting coronavirus infection, and you're more likely to have hypertension, diabetes, diseases of poverty, obesity. Well, those are more likely to kill you when you get coronavirus. So America is, again, an exceptional target for this disease in terms of mortality because we're so sick. And when you look at the demographics of who's getting sick, originally everyone was saying it's just old people. Well, in America, actually, a lot of young people were getting sick, some who had not a lot of diagnosis. But again, that's still a small component. We remember it because we go, oh, that could be any of us then. But a lot of people have either undiagnosed or diagnosed diabetes, hypertension, things that put them at risk. And the show we did with Ranesh Sinha, Dr. Ron Sinha, talked about why those diseases can actually put you at risk. So theorizing why you'd be more likely to suffer an inflammatory cascade, cytokine storm, and other things like that that can kill you with COVID. So again, I'm referencing these conversations we've had over time. So at this point, America is disorganized. They don't have the testing. They don't have the universal masking culture. So what do we have to do? Very draconian measures that shut the economy down in a way that causes economic turmoil and disaster and huge unemployment, which leads to more suicide, more mental illness, more domestic abuse, more pediatric abuse, less people coming to the hospital because they're afraid of getting COVID, so they're not getting their regular vaccinations, which what's gonna happen when you combine a COVID epidemic with a measles epidemic with a flu epidemic, because no one's getting vaccinated. So you have a complete screw up, everything kind of, all the Swiss cheese holes aligned to have this bullet come right through and hit us. So that's why we are where we are today. It's a series of unfortunate events, right? So here's the question. Where do we go from here to make this better? And this is where I'm actually quite encouraged because I think we're actually gonna do, we're gonna come out of this better than we went in on many levels, right? We're gonna be doing more telehealth. We're gonna shake up administrations, how physicians and other healthcare professionals are paid. We're gonna change ideas around personal hygiene and working from home and commuting. We're gonna reduce traffic and congestion. We're changing the face of our economy to be one that's much more uh, you know, work from home, stay with family. We're changing how we educate our children. They're using tools like Zoom. It's not perfect, but it's a different way of doing things. And then as far as the virus goes, I do think, and Marty McCary and I agree on this, that the warming climate in the summer is gonna kick this thing in the air, but for a while until the second resurgence in the fall. So we have time to prepare. Yes, they're working on vaccines, now, the problem is, here's another thing that's uniquely American. One of our big strengths as a country is that we have open free speech. We have a robust social media apparatus. Well, combine those two, and you, what you do is you start to weaponize disinformation. And we're seeing this already with COVID-19. So 
you have people out there protesting lockdowns, not wearing masks, because they believe conspiracy theories that are crazy. Now, if you're out there protesting lockdowns because you believe that the economic consequences of a lockdown outweigh the known scientific consequences of COVID, that's a decision you've made based on what your values are. That's fine. I'm going to repeat that. That's perfectly reasonable. People of good intention can disagree as to the best way that we want to fight this. I think it's perfectly reasonable for a person to say, I'm not saying I'm saying this, it's reasonable for a person to say, we should have just let this rip through the community and kill who it's going to kill and get it over with and develop herd immunity and develop a more resilient economy and a better way to fight pandemics in the future. I don't take that stance. I think it's not compassionate. I think the care versus harm principle applies and you're killing people who could have been saved, including healthcare workers, because they don't have PPE. But somebody who says that is making a balance saying he or she believes that more people would die from the economic turmoil and the prolonged nature of flattening the curve instead of the curve hitting us all at once and wrecking everything. It, the same number of people get infected over a longer period of time. That's no good. Now, why would someone believe that? Because vaccines are not easy. Anyone who tells you that a vaccine's coming in like 12 months is trying to sell you something. That is not safe. And our interview with Dr. Paul Offit, who has made and invented vaccines and has every incentive to push a vaccine, was very circumspect and cautious about this. And I think we should be too. We should be working on it with everything we have, as well as antiretrovirals, antivirals and all that, actual treatments. But at the same time, we need to understand that that's not coming right away. Now, back to disinformation. The people that you cannot forgive are people who are latching onto these conspiracy theories and denying the actual scientific facts, which are pretty clear now. It's taken us a minute to really get them settled, but it's pretty clear. In elderly people, this is way more fatal than flu. In lower risk people, maybe not so much, but in elderly people, this is a killer. In people with chronic disease, this is a killer. We've had plenty of guests on the show, Scott Weingart is one of them, uh, talking about how this disease is so different clinically from flu in how it's killing people. We're seeing, and this is the evolution of this understanding of this disease, we're seeing blood clots in patients who have no business clotting. We're seeing inflammatory cascades and multi-system organ failure. We're seeing uh, heart pathology because of ACE2, presumably ACE2 receptor mediated damage from the virus. And again, we've talked about this in other shows, our medical updates. And this is remarkable in that people who are recovering can suddenly die of a cardiac arrest. And now we're starting to see, whereas before we thought children were not affected really at all, we're seeing a rare but still very concerning pattern in children of this multi-system inflammatory syndrome of children, MISC, which looks like Kawasaki's disease, which is an autoimmune disease in children that affects blood vessels in the heart, larger blood vessels in the heart. We're seeing a slightly different syndrome that resembles it somewhat in children now, and the cases are popping up in a way that's way more than random probability, and they're often associated with a positive COVID test or an exposure to the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 disease. So as this disease evolves, our understanding of it evolves. Originally, everybody was getting intubated early. Even I said, hey, the standard of care from what we're seeing in Washington State is intubate early if you think 
people are looking um, like they they're have low uh, oxygen levels. Now we're realizing there are people called happy hypoxemics who can actually tolerate low oxygen levels quite well. And so avoiding the cascade that happens when you put a breathing tube in someone and force air into their lungs under pressure, that creates its own set of problems. And we talked to Dr. Wes Ely on the show about that set of problems that you create. How do you balance that? We're getting better at that. One of the advantages of flattening the curve, by the way, is that you buy yourself some time to learn how to manage the disease. I would much rather get sick with COVID-19 later when we have a better understanding than early on, right? And so this being said, right now, we have to understand what we don't know is still a butt ton. What we know is actually growing by the minute. The way we're gonna manage this moving on is we're gonna take advantage of what's gonna happen in the summer, which is gonna be a slowing of infections. Take advantage of the time we've bought through our lockdowns. Start to open up where appropriate, doing it thoughtfully. Absolutely, we need to do that because the economic damage and the damage to our way of life costs lives, period. So we have to do that, but we need to watch carefully. And at, and at that point, we do need to consider if we can get PPE spun up, ditching these stupid cloth masks and getting everyone surgical masks. Why isn't the government spending that $3.2 trillion stimulus package on rapidly building factory capacity to, to, to manufacture surgical masks for the public? Instead of sending, you know, in addition to sending someone a stimulus check, send them five surgical grade masks, which we know from the South Korean experience and the Singaporean experience actually work quite well, right? So then people aren't wearing, you know, flimsy bandanas that give them a false sense of security. And I think we could actually do a lot better, change the culture and the stigma around masking, right? And there is one, uh, there is one. So. That being said, you do that, then the question is, in America, are we ever gonna be able to spin up an, a quote unquote army of contact tracers? This is where I have a lot of reservation because Americans just hate that stuff, right? They have to be shown death and despair at their doorstep to give up you know, their privacy or to you know, give up the freedom not to wear a mask, something like that. And in places where that is happening, like New York, oh, they're willing to do it. In places that haven't seen enough COVID, they're willing to deny it even exists as a thing. They think it's a government conspiracy. And there's no way they're gonna let contact tracers you know, violate their privacy. So we have to start to think about what that means. And the question is, are we ever gonna have enough capacity to do the testing and the contact tracing that would lead us to a Singapore-like outcome? Or are we gonna be stuck with, this is gonna burn through our population at a rate that is slowed by some of the auto distancing practices. Now back to this, Sweden. There's all kinds of press on Sweden and how you read that press depends on your politics. Uh, if you're right of center uh, uh, and you're a uh, right of center uh, press outlet, you're gonna spin that as, hey look, these guys didn't have draconian shutdowns and they're doing just fine. If you're left of center, you, your press is gonna spin it as, look at the excess number of deaths in Sweden relative to other countries that did more aggressive lockdowns. Here's where I think it, the truth is, and as usual, it's somewhere in the middle. Most of their deaths are in the elderly, in nursing home populations, which they did not manage correctly early on. To their, they self-admitted this. But the rest of the population is doing what that choir in Washington State did. 
They're doing what a grown-up responsible person would do. If they had symptoms, they self-isolate. They're, you know, they're doing uh, basically rational self-isolation. Now they're, they're different because the majority of their uh, households are single person households, social distancing is built in. In America, that's not how it is. In Louisiana, there's multiple multi-generations living in a single house. And a lot of the infections happen in those homes in close quarters with sustained contact because it's area under the curve of how many virus particles are you exposed to over time. So it's, it's a very different experience, but the auto-regulation of people just saying, you know what, oh, I see a lot of people are getting sick. I'm gonna be a little bit more careful about going out. If I have symptoms, I, you know, I'm gonna wear a mask no matter what, this kind of thing. That can help a lot. And that means actually relying on our fellow citizens to do the right thing so that we don't have to necessarily shut down the economy, right? Um, grocery stores have actually done a pretty good job even in, you know, like you have places where the curve has been bent a lot, grocery stores are open. People are wearing masks, right? Checkout clerks aren't getting massively sick. So something's working. And we should learn from the bright spots of what is actually working, which we've talked about on the show, the different bright spots where things actually work. So that all being said, um, let's see if we have some comments here that we can read. Um, is it possible that COVID is an autoimmune virus that affects lungs and other, symptom, uh, other systems? Well, says Gail uh, Keitel, we know that the immune system is a huge part of how COVID-19 causes its havoc. Part of the reason is it's the immune response to the virus. So the virus itself can cause havoc by actually killing and causing what they call direct viral cytopathic effect harming cells it directly infects. And those can include lung cells, the cells lining the blood vessels, which is one theory as to why there's so many blood clots in patients with COVID infections, because you're damaging the endothelial cells and allowing the clotting cascade to occur because you're exposing compounds underneath those cells that cause blood clotting, because the blood thinks, the blood thinks that, I love to personify blood cells, the blood thinks that there's been a cut and it needs to clot because it's seeing blood vessel wall that it normally doesn't see. That's actually kind of what happens in a heart attack too uh, when you look at myocardial infarction. So that being said, there's direct cytopathic effect of the virus, but then there's also the response of the body's immune system to the virus that can be overwhelming and can cause infiltration of organs with inflammatory cells that are parts of the immune system, as well as cascades causing low blood pressure and organ failure that come from an aggressive response. Think about anaphylaxis from a peanut allergy. That's your own immune system killing you, right? So yes, it has a huge immune component. And one of the theories why it affects older people more than young is that older people have been more exposed to coronaviruses over time, they have a stronger immune system that can actually partially has some memory of previous coronavirus and mounts this huge but ineffectual attack on the virus that then causes more harm to the host. So that's one theory. Now, um, let's read some other comments actually. Uh, when is it safe to see our families, says Dana Zentgraf. So this is where Americans have a very, all of us have a very bad grasp of risk risk and benefit. So a lot of people ask me this question, when is it safe, I'm a grandmother, when can I see my grandkids? My own parents ask me this question. When can we see our grandkids? Well, you have to weigh a few things. 
What's the risk of the activity you're undertaking and what are the benefits to you and those around you? If the benefits outweigh the risk, then you take that action. If the risks outweigh the benefits, then you wait. So let's say you're a grandparent and you wanna see your grandkids. Well, we know that children and adults can be asymptomatic carriers. We know that older people are at higher risk of dying of COVID-19. We also know that older people are at risk of dying from loneliness-related disorders. We also know that if you were to die of something else because you're not going to the hospital because of COVID and you don't see your grandchildren, that can leave long-lasting scars on the family. There's all kinds of considerations. So how do you mitigate the risk, which is dying of COVID, and maximize the benefit, which is hanging out with your kids? Well, one way might be going uh, and seeing them from a distance on a front lawn outside where it's sunny. Well, UV rays, it's warmer. Maybe you're wearing masks so that if somebody coughs or projects something, you're safe. That's one way to mitigate risk. Or you may say, I'm okay with getting infected and I'm willing to see my grandchildren because I know I'm not gonna make them so sick that they're likely to die. That's very unlikely. So you can weigh the risk that way. This is the same thing as we open up. How much risk are you willing to take? Do you wanna go to a restaurant and not wear a mask and have a waiter who is wearing a mask? Thinking the risk is not that high if there's good ventilation, especially if there's outdoor seating. And I think we ought to weigh risks as a society. What are the risks of hiking on a trail that isn't crowded, like Central Park, say? They're pretty damn low. So maybe we shouldn't force people to wear masks outside like that because, first of all, it creates this weird culture of fear in outside environments when we ought to be encouraging people to go outside and exercise because that's gonna be one way to prevent and lower your risk of dying of COVID, which we talked about with Ron Sinha on the show. Let's see, let's see, let's see. Boy, these comments move so fast. Let me try to grab a few others here. Um, Yeah, uh, Debbie sees some really dumb stuff as a retired infection nurse. How do you know for sure the virus will go down in the summer? Uh, Says, um, Okisha, I can't read. Oh, it already already went away. These comments scroll too fast, you guys. Stop leaving comments. Um, Wait, Oleshka G. Um, how do you know it'll go down in the summer? And even if it doesn't, how do you know? Ah, it's just already just just spinning. And even if I try to hold, it doesn't stay. All right, I'll try to understand this. We don't know, but we have inferences from what we see in states that are warmer and countries that are warmer. They have lower infection rates. Other coronaviruses don't do well in warm climates and influenza doesn't do well. Even that's a little controversial, but doesn't do well in, in warm. That's why we see it predominantly in the winter, although it's also because schools are open in the winter and influenza travels quite quickly through children, right? So this all being said, I think we uh, may have hit, let me see if there's any other comments that I can see here. Do you believe there will be a rebound, Teresa Gates? I don't, oh, it's not a matter of belief. This is a simple mathematical fact. Unless you extinguish the virus like you did with SARS, all it takes is another individual to be a super spreader and you have a new cluster if people aren't vigilant, if we aren't doing contact tracing and extensive testing and screening. So it's a foregone conclusion there'll be a second wave. But the question is, again, this is a bad disease. Nobody wants to get it. It may just be inevitable that we have to go through this, do the most harm reduction we can, knowing that there will be people who die and get sick and have long-term consequences. It's the other thing we don't talk about. We don't talk about the PTSD in healthcare workers and in people who've gotten sick and are tortured in the ICU, um, paralyzed and sedated or sedated and 
you know, not getting sedation holidays and not getting spontaneous awakening trials and spontaneous breathing trials that Wes Ely talked about on the show. And they're suffering prolonged cognitive deficits. We're not, you know, really uh, uh, talking about those things, but those are things we have to consider when we talk about the impact of this disease. So it's a bad disease, but it may be one of those things that's just inevitable because of all the screw-ups and everything that happened. We gotta get through it, we will, and we'll get back to some semblancy of what's a new normal. And my opinion is the new normal will be better actually than the old normal, which was complacent. Um, and I suspect that the habits we learn with between social distancing, hand hygiene, masking when you're sick or when you're not sick, might actually find that we reduce influenza and other respiratory diseases, particularly among elderly and those that are vulnerable, uh, in a way that's permanent, which would be fantastic. So I'm actually quite encouraged that American exceptionalism will actually find a lot of good silver lining. I think we're gonna totally revamp the healthcare system. And I've been talking to a lot of leaders in healthcare actually who are working on thinking about how we're gonna do this because it's all about how we're paid. If we can change how we're paid, um, one of the great things that could happen is COVID-19 could tear through our politician leadership and just sideline them and we get new leaders. That would be great, but that's wishful thinking uh, and also a little mean and not compassionate, but still, uh, I'm just saying greater good, greater good people. Um, and I think our medical understanding of viruses and our immune system is gonna be better, including vaccines, which will be great. So now, back to disinformation. Forgot to tie that up. The disinformation campaigns that are Facebook specialty, YouTube specialty, they're trying, but they can't control it. The anti-vaxxers are back, people, and they're back with a vengeance, and they think they know what's up, and the problem is now, more than ever, they are gonna cost lives with disinformation. So the way we fight back is we block those guys, we deprive them of having a voice on our own platform, right? And we fight that with information and rational dialogue, and also accepting that the anti-vaxxers and the conspiracy people have a point there's hell no you shouldn't trust the government or big corporations to keep you well and healthy. You have to think for yourself, but that means using critical thinking. And unfortunately, that's where anti-vaxxers and conspiracy people fall flat. Their critical thinking is stunted. So maybe we ought to focus on teaching critical thinking. And I'll be doing a podcast on Sunday with um, somebody who's a kind of a famous podcaster talking about how we can get better at our own critical thinking. All right, so... That's the main thing I wanted to say at 45 minutes. The other thing I wanted to say is I want to thank all the supporters of the show who subscribe for $4.99 a month on Facebook or $4.99 and up, whatever they choose on YouTube, or send you know support through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash ZDogMD because in this time, this is the way we support the team and our show and, and our broadcast, so it means a lot to us. But the way you can really support us, if you can't do that or don't, because people are going through hard times, guys. That's why I appreciate it so much that you're able to do this. Um, and I support you know, my ongoing team for that reason. Um, leave a comment, share the video, tell us what you think. That is spreading information and critical thinking. So I love you guys. Um, I will see you the next time we do a show and we are out, peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe.
it, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I want to hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st- really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.